these feelings are just profoundly intelligent. You know, fear says, hey, I'm like a best friend telling you, you've got to learn something you don't know right now. Or sadness says, hey, you got to let something go if you're really going to be able to stay present to the way it is now. Or anger saying, hey, you got to pay attention. Something needs to get changed here to serve you and your people more. I mean, these emotions are so intelligent in offering us wisdom. And so if we're suppressing them as well, not only are we tired, but we're also not as intelligent in making powerful decisions. Hey there, and welcome to Where the Road Bends, a podcast that explores personal evolutions and life transitions. I'm your host, Steve Schlafman, and I'm so glad you're here with me and our next guest. I hope our conversation inspires you, challenges you, and provides you with insights that will help you navigate your own journey of personal growth and transformation. Let's dive in. So today's guest is a real special treat. Uh, We are joined by the one and only Diana Chapman of the Conscious Leadership Group. Um, Before I hand it over to Diana, I just want to say how much I appreciate being here with you. For those listening, I spent a year uh, learning under Diana and her co-founder, Jim Detmer, as part of their annual coaching training program. And it was really one of the most remarkable life-changing experiences. And I just have so much gratitude for her, for Jim, and the Conscious Leadership Group. So anyhow, it's it's a real pleasure for you to be on the show. Uh, I'm so delighted to be here and be part of what you're creating here in this podcast. Thanks, Diana. So I think a great place for us to start is who who is Diana Chapman? Who is Diana Chapman? Diana Chapman is someone who's really passionate about helping people reduce drama, whether that's drama in their workplace, drama in their own heads, um, drama in other important and meaningful relationships. But that's what excites me is how do we have more fun and put our attention on play and and, uh, passion uh, and create things that are exquisite? Versus drama is no problem with drama. You know, drama's got its own form of entertainment. But I'm I'm interested in what other options are available. And for those listening, how how long have you been helping people reduce drama? I'm about 20 years now. I started out working with couples um, a a lot and some individuals, um, but did a lot of couples work and then um, transitioned over into the business world. And I've been there for about 12 years. Before you became a coach, if I have the facts correct, you were a stay-at-home mom. I was. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that phase in your life? Yeah. I stayed home with my kids for the first 12 years. I loved it. I had a blast. I, I love to play. And I just played with my kids a lot. And I involved myself in some of the community projects out there and and took on leadership roles there. But I really don't have much business experience at all. Uh, And so my support of business leaders is really around consciousness support, not business support. And that's my expertise. And what was your life like in those days? Honestly, it was really dreamy. I was so lucky. I had other women who also really interested in being with their children and we'd all hang out together and go to parks and hang out by lakes. It was very, it was simple. It was um, 
lots of giggles and laughs and lots of introducing my kids to the natural world. And um, they stayed with me for the first seven years. I didn't, um, it's not really a lot of homeschooling at that point, but I really liked that time. And yeah, I would say my, my role was to be a tour guide of reality to my children. And then something shifted. Yeah, then something shifted. So I have always been a seeker of well-being, I would say. And I was always reading books and um, was involved in a, a spiritual center in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I lived at the time and um, brought in lots of different lectures and book authors on topics of human consciousness. And I was gifted a training by my brother-in-law and sister-in-law for whom were really also interested in personal development and said, you can do whatever you want uh, with $5,000, but we're going to highly recommend you take a plane out to California and study with Gay and Katie Hendricks, which we did. And it was as if like somebody turned the lights on in my life and offered me tools and um, models that made the relationship so much easier. And I've, I remember thinking, this is criminal that I'm mid thirties, just learning these tools and decided that I was going to spend the rest of my life figuring out how to get these out to the world more broadly. And, and was it literally that weekend you, you had that notion or what did, did something happen afterwards? No, it literally was that weekend. It was just like wow. ping, 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 ping. Oh my gosh, this is going to help so much. Wow. Of course we've been in drama here. Oh, the, this tool's you know already changing how I look at my husband. And so, um, yeah, it was immediate. Wow. Yeah. So I, I just continued every time I went back to study with them, it just kept getting stronger and stronger. This is so helpful. And then did you immediately become a coach following that or was there, there, was there a process? I would say I immediately started practicing. I, I've, I found other people who wants to get into circles and then they ended up, um, they had an uh, apprentice program. And so when my kids were just a little older, I joined their two-year apprentice program and traveled around the country with them and taught, um, you know, taught with them, explored with them and, um, and stayed around for even many years after that. So, um, you know, they were masters at this material. So it was great to build a, build a skill level watching them and um, exploring with them. Did you meet anyone at that retreat? Did I meet anyone? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, of course. So <laughs> I was teaching uh, a prerequisite for this couples course that Gay and Katie uh, were offering. And at that course showed up Jim Dethmer and his wife, Debbie, and we got to know them there. And they ended up joining the apprentice program with my husband, Matt and I, and um, we became good friends with them. And then somehow Jim and I ended up working together many years later. And here we are co-founding the Conscious Leadership Group. And how long ago did you found the Conscious Leadership Group? You know, I think it was like 11 years ago, 12 years ago. I, I'm, you know, no, I forget. And in the book, you know, obviously the book is, I would put it in cult classic territory in, in the business world. There's a rabid fan base. For those listening, what are the 15 commitments of conscious leadership? So Jim and I, and another woman named Kaylee Klemp, we were all working with YPO a lot. And we were wanting to figure out how are we going to support these leaders more? And so we came together for a few days 
and um, sat down and just started to write some content. And the 15 commitments came out of that. And we thought 15 is an awful lot. And we tried to cure it down. But people were always asking us, give us the roadmap. What is the roadmap to learn how to reduce an end drama? And so we thought, well, if we're going to be comprehensive in our roadmap, which we all tend to like to do, we came up with these 15 commitments that are ways of orienting oneself in the world to be able to um, have more aliveness, connection, creativity, and uh, less na 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know that na 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 na, at least in my, my own head. Yeah. And early in the book, I, I, I actually, if my memory serves me correctly, it's not even the first commitment, but in, in, the, in the introduction of the book, you introduce a concept that's known as above or below the line. Yeah. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So, uh, so many of these tools come from all of our study with Gay and Katie Hendricks, and they introduced us to this concept. I'm not sure where they found it. Um, but above and below the line is just a very simple model that says in any given moment, you're either above the line. And when you're above the line, you're open, you're curious, you want to learn, even if things look challenging out there. And you're in a state of trust. I trust, meaning I trust that there's no threat to me right now. I trust that I'm going to learn. When I'm below the line, I get a little closed, closed-minded, closed-hearted, closed in my body, and I contract and I feel somehow threatened. I stopped trusting and I started to believe that there may be a threat to my security control or approval and I get reactive. Yeah, when when I first learned the concept, I think it was at one, a taste of conscious leadership. And initially I was like, oh, I'm above the line all the time. And then it turns out that I, I basically live below the line. And so for those listening, how does someone know where they are? How does someone locate themselves? Yeah, we, um, we have a handout that we give people and maybe we'll be able to share it here in your notes. The handout really helps people look down and see like, are you saying these things in your head? Like it's hard or I can't, or are you um, behaving in certain ways, wanting to debate in a way that's trying to prove yourself right? Um, are you believing in either or thinking? All these kinds of things will be pointers to the fact that you might be in a reactive state. And so it's, it's just about taking a look at um, the differences between those and what might you be saying or believing or um, behaving that show that you're reactive or not. In your view, how, how might this, how might this relate to change and transition? Ooh, <clears throat> well, you know, most human beings get really scared in transitions, right? And you can get scared from above the line, which is like, wow, I'm trusting that I'm going to find my way through this and um, there'll be lots to learn. Or I could be below the line in a threatened state that feels more anxious, a little more contracted, like, oh, and I'm wondering, you know, am I going to be okay? And creating a lot of angst for myself along the way in that transition. So learning how to differentiate above and below the line helps a lot. It doesn't mean the transition is necessarily going to be um, any different in how it looks, but certainly will be different in how it feels. And when we're below the line, what happens is we can get stuck there. Yeah. 
if someone's stuck below the line and sort of, as you would say, recycling drama, what options do they have? Well, first of all, we just say, hey, look, if you're a human on planet Earth, you're going to have drama. I mean, that's just natural and normal, as natural and normal as breathing is, you know, so don't make it a big deal. And the one who's creating drama is scared. That part is often young. It's like a young, threatened part of us. And so one of the first things is, can I just accept myself for being scared, for being triggered, for creating drama? People skip over this step a lot, but we say you can't shift that which you cannot accept. Hmm. And so we really want people to pay attention to how can they have more um, acceptance so that that part of them relaxes, it settles down and gets incorporated into the bigger system. And what are some ways that people can start to tune into their level of acceptance? Well, it's sort of like um, bringing that inner parent out in each of us. Some of us are parents. And so we can imagine if a child's scared, we accept that child. Mm -hmm. But even if you're not a parent, you can imagine what it's like to accept a child who is scared. And so just to bring that kind of motherly, fatherly quality back to oneself, take some breaths, open up. Uh, it's just a, a great way. And oftentimes it takes a few rounds to really, truly accept oneself. And then after acceptance, where, where do they go? So then we're going to go into, would you be willing to shift out of this threatened state? And we ask people willingness questions that are related to the commitments. Many of these we learned from Gay and Katie Hendricks with first one being, hey, would you be willing to stop blaming Stop blaming other people. Stop blaming yourself. Stop blaming any other stakeholders. Would you, for, for now, would you be willing to stop blame? And for some folks, it's, the answer is no. <laughs> I want to stop blaming. I'd rather be right right now. So we say no problem. Then you're just going to continue creating probably some similar results. But if you are willing to stop blaming, then you get to start taking ownership of how you have a part to play in whatever it is you're co-creating. Hmm. As I'm listening to you, I'm I'm thinking of that that this idea of acceptance isn't just an intellectual activity, yeah, but it's also uh, an embodied activity. In fact, I think when I started out at working with you all at Conscious Leadership Group, I would just say I, I have acceptance from my head, right? And over time, what I learned is that. Uh, acceptance in our bodies feels very different. Um, maybe we can use this as a pivot point for you to talk about the three centers of intelligence and why they matter. Sure. So we have IQ, our intellectual intelligence. We have EQ, our emotional intelligence. And we have BQ, our body intelligence, our instinctual knowledge. And so to your point, a lot of people intellectualize the idea of acceptance. Yeah, sure, sure, I can accept that. But they haven't dropped down into the other two centers. So we say, can your heart open to that part of you that's scared? Can you actually feel that heart opening? Some people might notice it as a warmth in the chest um, or even get a little um, tender with even feeling a little teary. And then can you feel it down in the body? Does the breath open up? Does the body relax? Do muscles settle down? in their contraction. And so you'll often see people pink up a little bit when they're um, really in a state of acceptance. Do you see a facial shift often and a big breath comes in? Ah, yeah, okay, I can accept myself. And related to decision-making, 
you know, whether you're an executive or, you know, you're just the master of your own life, how does someone start to tune into these different centers of intelligence? Yeah. So we have this concept that I learned from Kathleen Hendricks called whole body. Yes. Oh, that came from Kathleen Hendricks. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. That's, that's hers. And so the idea is that when we make decisions, we do have these three centers that we can use. And each one has its own intelligence that's got a different lens at looking at the issue. And so, so many of us got taught in school to go listen to IQ, go listen to your head. What's your head say? Um, which is a wonderful tool, but there are these other tools and there are a lot of us who have a lot of emotional intelligence. You know, people, you might hear um, somebody say, my heart's not in it. You know, there's mm -hmm. something about this isn't quite right for me. Um, and so their, their emotional intelligence is guiding them. And then some of us, including me, are really guided by our instincts. And so my body gives me a lot of feedback. There's a, a warmth and an uprising of energy when there's a yes for me. Uh, and then my energy starts to drop when it's a no. And often that body doesn't have data to support it. It's just instinctual. And we all have all three. We all tend to lead with one over the other, but each of them is equally valuable. And when you're not triggered and reactive, whole body yes is a fantastic way to decide, do I want to go left or right? Um, you know, here are three options, which one feels like the one that mo is most aligned. And so I find this to be a very, very valuable tool for anyone who's making important decisions. And how might someone hone this? Yeah, it's a good practice to start with simple things like just start with looking at a menu and saying, when I tune into what my body needs and what would really be delicious, I'm going to try each one of these things on. So let me just try on that Cobb salad. Let me try on that soup. Let me try on that sandwich and just notice what happens with my head, heart and gut all three centers when I'm considering these different things. So that's one way to practice and just see what was your experience. Another way to practice might be as simple as um, I'm heading home and there's a few different routes I could take. Which route am I, do I feel like I have a whole body yes to? Yesterday was over the weekend, my husband and I were traveling and there was a sign that suggested that the road might be closed, but then it, it looked like it was just right there for what was right in front of us. And I said, oh, I think it was just, just that. And he goes, my sense is, there's something else going on. And sure enough, we, you know, traveled several miles down and then found out it was closed way out ahead and wasted a bit of time. And if we'd have listened to what he was tuning into, we would have just turned around and gone a different way. Yeah. And, and I'd imagine that through these daily practices, another one that comes to mind is picking out what you want to wear yeah. every morning. Yeah, exactly. And, and, is that you can start to actually know, like, what does a yes actually feel like versus... Uh, meh or no. Yeah. And we say anything other than a whole body. Yes. Is a no, because so many of us are used to living from obligation. And so we we're used to like, eh, it's not bad. It's okay. I, I can do that. That's in our world. That's not a yes. So, so take an example where let's say someone is in the middle of a, of a big change or wanting to make a change or transition and they're, they're sort of going back and forth, you know, maybe a few parts are, are sort of wrestling. How would you coach someone through that situation? Okay. So first of all, I'd say, um, make sure that you can let each side be okay. 
a lot of people get caught in, it'll be better if I go left versus right. So if you really want to be open, try on, well, I could go left and I could go right. Which one feels like the way would most serve me and my people? And so it's about making sure that both are honored and also letting yourself feel all the sides of you that want to go left and then feel all the sides of you that want to go right and let it be okay to let all that wanting in all directions be here. That helps a lot to be able to find underneath all the wanting, just what's the direction that wants to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and under that wanting, let's say that there's these no's that, that sort of creep in, maybe that there's some of these other parts that start to emerge. What should someone do? Well, at least I'll just speak for myself that when I start to feel parts that have a no, I want to listen to those parts. So tell me why you want to have a, what's the no about? What's the concern? Well, I'm concerned that, um, you know, if we go that route, that we're not going to have time for something else. Oh, that, that's really thoughtful. Great. I wonder how we could go that route and have some time for something else. Is that possible? Maybe, maybe not. But I'm listening to the, the nose inside of me to see what's the intelligence they have to offer and how do I make sure I'm creating results that support all parts of me and, and the balance around me, outside of me. And so what I'm hearing is, is listen to the sides as the nose creep in, get to know them and through understanding all the layers, ultimately getting more clarity to make a choice around, okay, like, is this really a yes or is this a no? Exactly. And and you said that a no is a no is a no. Yeah. Is that always the case for, for you? Well, any, for me, I've been practicing this for a long time. For me, anything other than a whole body yes is a no. And sometimes I do things I have a no to because um, maybe I am a little threatened. That happens occasionally. But most of the time I try to honor that whole body yes. And a whole body yes can also not feel like something I have a wee, oh, I'm so excited about this. So for example, um, I don't have a whole body yes, or I don't have a excitement about doing my expense reports. You know, I, I'd rather take a bullet than do my expense reports. And so, um, but, but I have a whole body yes to getting paid. And so I do the expense reports because I get paid. Same thing with my taxes or other things like that, that why do I do them? There's a bigger purpose beyond just that momentary action step that I have a whole body yes for that drives me through things that maybe are not as enjoyable to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And underneath a yes or a no, especially at these, at these transition points, ultimately we have to grieve something or let go of something. And so how does someone really feel their grief and, and let go? Yeah. You know, I think this is one of the most important skills people can have these days um, is to be able to let it be okay to feel that like, Oh, at the, at the most subtle level, it might be like, oh, darn. I was imagining that we were going to have pasta tonight. You know, <laughs> darn, I thought that was. So uh, it could be like these subtle little moments throughout the day. Oh, darn, um, so-and-so isn't coming to work today because they're sick. And so we're not going to be able to work on that project I was looking forward to. There's lots of those throughout the day. And then there's bigger things, you know, like, wow, I'm grieving Um, how many people are suffering over in Turkey right now with the earthquakes in Syria and 
or I'm grieving the loss of opportunities that for some people right now in the economy that's happening and um, people are losing their jobs. So the practice is to let yourself really feel that somatically in the body. It often is happening in the upper chest for a lot of us. It often can feel like some pressure in the chest, um, some tightening in the throat, sometimes some tears behind the eyes, and to let yourself breathe in and through those sensations all the way to completion, like welcome them in rather than trying to hold your breath and keep them away. And what's the benefit, right? For those listening that tend to be in their head all the time, hyper-rational, what's the benefit of being able to listen to the sadness, to the fear, to all these different emotions? Okay. Well, there's two things that I think are super important for why I'm such an advocate for people feeling feelings, even in the workplace, even anger, even um, is because one, in order to stop feeling your feelings, you have to hold your breath and holding your breath is exhausting. And I actually think a lot of burnout that happens for people at the end of their work days is because they've withheld so many feelings. They are suppressing depressing their breath so that they can't feel all these feelings. And that's, that can really be depleting energetically. Secondly, these feelings are just profoundly intelligent. You know, fear says, Hey, I'm like a best friend telling you, you've got to learn something you don't know right now. Or sadness is, Hey, you got to let something go. If you're really going to be able to stay present to the way it is now, or anger saying, Hey, you got to pay attention. Something needs to get changed here to serve you and your people more. I mean, these emotions are so intelligent in offering us wisdom. And so if we're suppressing them as well, not only are we tired, but we're also not as intelligent in making powerful decisions. And obviously there's the benefit of making decisions, but what else happens? What else happens when you feel your feelings? Yeah. You get to have your energy back. You get to um, have all this aliveness. Like I said, it's depressing. It's tiring to hold them back. So when you feel them, it's like, ah, oh, wow, that feels so good. Uh, And yeah, that's a huge payoff is having your energy back. Yeah, the the word aliveness is like when I think of you, I think of aliveness. And (laughs) over the weekend, you tweeted, living from obligation kills aliveness. Most of us don't want to feel the fear or sadness that occurs if we say no. So we say yes when we don't mean it. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that and aliveness? Yeah. You know, I just find that people are pretty unwilling to get emotionally uncomfortable. No one wants to feel that swirl in the belly when I'm scared or that pressure in my chest when I'm sad. And so I will say yes because I'm afraid to feel those feelings. If I say no, I'm afraid you might be disappointed. And if you're disappointed, I might be scared or I'm afraid that even my own self, like I have two options and they're both great. And I'm going to grieve that I get, don't get to go to one. And I I don't Mm. want to have to feel that. And so when people let themselves honor those feeling states in themselves and in others, you know, a lot of us are trying to control each other's feelings too. Like, I don't want you to be scared. I don't want you to be sad. I don't want you to be angry. I'll be scared if you're angry. And so I'm trying to control you. I'm trying to control my feelings. And so then I do a lot of stuff I don't really want to do. And for most of us, it's not bad. It's, you know, and we go, we justify it. But my experience is it has huge consequences to our overall aliveness. So I do my best to live an obligation-free life. And 
it's, it's vulnerable. It's, um, I have to be really honest with people like, Hey, I'm a little scared right now to tell you, I don't want to do that. And, um, but the results for me are worth it. I, I really like, uh, that feeling of being so aligned, having so much, um, wholeness in my, um, self when I'm true to myself and only doing what I really want to be doing. And for, for those listening, what does full aliveness feel like? Oh gosh. It's like, um, there's a tingling often. I, I can feel it right now all through my body. There's a tingling. There's a, it's like, uh, every cell is a little doing a little bit of a dance. <laughs> my breath is open. There's this sense of, ah, inside. Yeah. And, and then what happens in that aliveness, there's just this positive sense of possibility that comes when I feel that there's like, I feel more like I can do more things. I feel more courageous when I feel that full aliveness. Hmm. Yeah. As I'm, as I'm listening to you, Diana, what I'm hearing or or what's coming up for me is the word integrity. And obviously there's integrity between two people, but then there's integrity with self. Yeah. Can you talk about how being in integrity with ourselves leads to aliveness? Yeah, because, um, you know, just as simple as um, I say, oh, I got to fix that stove. Uh, the stove isn't working the knobs off or something. You know, it's just a silly little thing. But then if I don't do it, if I don't follow through, then every time I walk by that silly knob, I'm like, oh, God, I got to get that knob done. Oh, I got to get that knob done. It starts draining my attention. It's it's a waste of my creativity thinking about that. And then, so, but if I just go, Hey, look, let's make an agreement with yourself by when are you going to get that knob done? (laughs) You know, I'm going to get that knob done. I'll order the new knob by Friday, 5 PM. So then I get it done and I don't have to spend my energy for the next, however many 30, 60, 90, sometimes people are sitting around on the knob for years. (laughs) I'm wondering about when I'm going to get that done. So then I get to have all that energy back to myself when I do what I say I'm going to do, when I don't do what I say I'm not going to do. I have that creative energy that would be worrying and fretting about various things just gets to get reused someplace else. And so what I'm hearing is that when you are in alignment, in agreement with yourself and others, that it frees up space to be more creative. Oh yeah. I mean, that's my big thing I'm talking to people now is we all pay drama tax. Like I said before, as long as you're a human being, you pay drama tax, but some of us are really paying a lot of tax. And if we could relax all that drama, settle down, then all that tax that we use gets repurposed for creativity, for being of service, for all different kinds of things that create connection and support other people. And that's very satisfying. Mm-hmm. And, and talking about creative, one of the five core emotions, according to Conscious Leadership Group, is sexual creative energy. Yeah, we're just coming back to calling it sexual energy. Sexual we're energy. Just calling it sexual. We did creative for a while because people were uncomfortable with sexual, but we're 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 putting the stake back in the ground for sexual. You're you're, own, you're owning it. That's right, and we're like get get comfortable with sexual energy because. It is part of being human. We are sexy creatures. We are here because we are on a lineage of a lot of sexy creatures. And sexual energy is so creative. And I want to really separate out sexual energy from sex 
because I can tell you back when I was a couples coach, there were a lot of people having sex who did not have sexual energy having sex. So uh, they don't have to be aligned in that way. Sexual energy is just, I'm turned on. I'm lit up by an idea. I'm passionate about something can be sexual energy. Sexual energy points to where you want to go create in the world. And innovative ideas come in my experience from being and flowing a lot of sexual energy. And so if we're all saying, hey, let's, we want to innovate some of these challenges we have in humanity, like climate change and other things, well then let's get sexy and let's start getting, um, you know, opening up all that aliveness that for me, um, I experience when I'm running a lot of it, it's like this wonderful flow of, um, Tingling comes up my back, up, the, up my spine, up around the top of my head, goes down the front of me, back around through um, the groin, and then back up like through your tailbone, all the way back up your spine again. And as you start to get connected to that, it's like so much vitality there. I, when people start channeling that energy in their bodies, they'll say, God, I, have so, I feel, don't feel tired anymore, which is my experience. Is that's, that's another one of the big payoffs is sexual energy is like being plugged into a battery. And uh, uh, that battery gives you plenty of fuel to um, move from. And how does someone cultivate it? I know we talked about being in alignment and in integrity. What are some other ways? Yeah, to create some sexual energy. Well, I would just say, start looking around for what lights you up. You know, I can look out right now and see the blossoms right now, the peach blossoms on the tree, you know, and I'm just getting lit up by that. And how lit up am I willing to be about the peach blossoms? Mm -hmm. And then I'm excited about an idea for a new book that um, Jim and I are just beginning to write. And it's like, let myself get how excited I am about that. And am I willing to be as alive and turned on about this book idea as I am? And getting comfortable with that because for a lot of people, they're not used to feeling that good. And so it mm-hmm. takes a while to train oneself to, to um, say, it's okay, you're safe to be this happy, to be this alive. Yeah, as I'm listening to you, what I'm sensing is, is especially during change and transition or in moments of drama, it's fear and anger. And those are the emotions that are, that are getting recycled, but there's something really intelligent about the sexual energy, which allows us to tune into what it is that we want. What do we want to express? What attracts us as a way to not to necessarily suppress those other emotions, but that we have another way another emotion to access. Yeah, it definitely lets you, it points to what you want. I would say anger, not judgment, criticism, righteousness, which is what a lot of people label anger, but anger from above a line can be equally intelligent because anger and sexual energy, in my opinion, are like two sides on the same coin. And Mm. anger is the destroyer and sexual energy is the creator. And they're both pointing to what wants to be created. Like what, what do we want to let go of? What do we want to end? What do we want to begin? They're very connected. And so um, I want to say to people that anger is so valuable as well in ending drama, actually, because I think a lot of drama happens because people don't get angry and say, stop, stop. This isn't mm. working. They're not angry. Above the line doesn't want to blame. It just wants to make a positive change. And, and what might that, you know, you said the stop, but what are other examples of, of anger being used 
skillfully above the line. Yeah. Anger above the line says something here is not serving me or my people. Something here could evolve a new system that supports us all, that meets the moment. Evolution, evolutionary change. Anger is often pointing to what evolutionary change wants to happen. Anger is also just saying um, there's a boundary that might need to be made. Or even as simple as like, hey, I tuned in about having dinner tonight at seven o'clock and I feel a little angry. I don't want to wait that long to eat. My body's like, it won't serve me to uh, to get to bed at the time I want to get to bed do if I eat at seven. So anger is just an intelligence that says, hey, something here could be more exquisite. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking of one of my, my clients. He's a COO of a public company. And one of the investors and board members is not treating him well with the respect that he thinks he deserves. And he's fed up with it. And that anger is showing him, it's telling him that he needs to make a change. Yeah. Yeah. Anger says, hey, value me. See me. See me as unique and different than others and um, have my own ways of doing things and make them as valuable as other ways. Mm. One of the things that you do better than anybody I know is playing. Uh-huh. Right. I, I've heard you use the word toddle. Okay. And make things big and exaggerate. Can you talk about the power of making things bigger and playing? Yeah. Okay. So a lot of people who want to end drama, one of the things I encourage them to do is before you end it, can you play with it? Can you make it bigger? Can you have fun with it? Because it's part of accepting. And again, like I mentioned earlier, you can't shift that that which you cannot accept. So, you know, if you tend to be a little on the grumpy side, sometimes can you make grumpy bigger? I'm so grumpy. And so that you start to have a little acceptance and it's a little, usually there's a little giggle that comes in when you make things bigger. Also, the more you have the mindset, this is serious, this isn't funny, the harder it is to learn and create change. So the more we can play with things and find a little levity, even in things that are really scary, even in things that are challenging. Um, My experience is, is that people open up and relax and learn more when there's some lightness to it, which is why I encourage people to exaggerate, make it bigger and play with it. And and at what point would someone play with it? Immediately. As soon as you notice a pattern, I recommend playing with it. So let's just say, um, let's just say somebody's chronically late to meetings all the time. And the teams might say, hey, you know, you know, you're always late, right? <laughs> Can we just play with this? Because it's, it's not really, we're starting to be a little irritated by it and it keeps happening. So, you know, like somebody then acting really like uh, coming in late, but exaggerating like, oh God, you guys don't know how hard it was to get here. And I couldn't, you know, it was like crossing the desert, you know, and making it silly. So the people go, all right, at least we're having some fun with this now. Because if it's not going to change, can we can we find ways to love it the way it is? And then my experience is once we start to play with it, it automatically starts to shift. Why do you think we've abandoned play? Well, come on now, young man. Sit up straight. Be quiet in school. <laughs> we have to be serious here. We have serious things to do. You know, you ask kids, what's your favorite part of school? What do they all say? Recess. Why? Because it's where we play. Humans and all mammals learn best through play, but school systems trying to manage, you know, 30 kids in a classroom is like, 
too chaotic. Everybody just quiet down, be still. Um, and play got moved out of the system in a lot of ways. So I feel like um, that's one of the biggest missing experiences for humans right now is learning how to come back to play in all the various ways. There's so many fun ways to play. One of, one of the things I realized is um, I used to, as a kid, I would collect things. I collect gum wrappers and beer cans and stamps. And it was really, it was a fun thing. For, it was a way I liked to play. And so I was looking back and realizing, oh, I don't collect like I used to. And so during COVID, I decided I wanted to start collecting hiking spots. So I bought a book on all the hiking spots in Santa Cruz Mountains near where I live and would each weekend collect a new hike. And I would go to a new place and then I'd write something down about it. And I just kept, and it was a fun way to do collecting again. And it's a form of play. And we have a great handout on our website. Um, We have a wonderful resource page there and you can look up um, one of the commitments is to play. And there's a great handout talking about the different play styles and helping people remember like, what are your favorite ways you like to play and how could you be incorporating those now as an adult? Yeah. I recently, or I guess last year picked up Legos as a, as a form of play. And now Faye and I, my daughter, her name is Faye. uh, She and I play Legos on the floor almost every single day. Yeah. And it's been such a game changer for me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Puzzling and, and building. Both are great examples of play. And, and there's a, there's a concept in the book that you talk about. Um, that's not yours. I think it's gay. Hendrix is zone of genius. Yeah. How is zone of genius tied to play? Well, my experience is that when you're in your zone of genius, you feel like you're playing mm. because time and space go away. You know, like when you were a kid, time and space would go away when you're playing. Um, you forget to eat often when you're in your zone of genius because you're just being so fed by what you're doing. And so I find that that flow state is very similar to when people are playing. And how does someone discover what their zone of genius is? Yeah, there's lots of ways to do that. Some of the key ways I do that is one, I ask my clients to go back and find their eight favorite memories of their life in which two things occurred. One, whatever they were doing, they really had fun. And that fun doesn't have to be haha fun. It might've been like, yeah, I guided people up the side of a mountain and uh, it was really scary, but very fun for me, like satisfying. And whatever you were doing, you felt like you did an exceptional job. You really think you were better than most. So you're looking for the combination of those two things anytime throughout your life, bring those eight top memories. And you'll find that at least six of those eight memories will carry a thread of the same thing, same way you're being is pointing to your zone of genius. And then we also have um, an email campaign that we ask our clients to do where they ask people around them to reflect zone of genius because Zone of genius for a lot of us is not easy to see because it's always the water you've swam in. It's like saying to a fish, you know, wow, you're an amazing swimmer. And the fish is like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just being me. And so zones of excellence where you built the skill over time, you didn't used to be as good at it, but now you are. Those are good. We can spot those easily about ourselves. But zones of genius, we need community around us to go, hey, Steve, you're really good at that. And you go, really? Huh? I didn't, I thought everybody was like this because it's just so natural to me. So those are some of the ways we have people do that. Also to just go take a look at, go look at your calendar over the last couple of weeks 
and go take a look at, you know, what you were doing hour by hour and where, what were you doing when your energy really went up? You know, when that felt like time and space went away, what, and what's the common thread in all of those various hours that starts to point to zone of genius. Mm-hmm. And, and if someone that's listening is like, yeah, this all sounds great, but I have other responsibilities. What would, what would you say to them? I would say, I think you're ripping yourself and the world off if you're not really investigating what it is your, is your zone of genius, because your zone of genius can be used in many, many ways to be able to make money, make a living. And it's where your greatest gifts lie. So if you're really going to serve the world, we want you to serve us with your greatest gifts. And you're going to feel so alive in your zone of genius because it's not draining. Whereas your zone of excellence and zones of competence can be tiring. So why would we want you being tired day after day? Let's, let's get you uh, aligned with what it is you most love. And what are some of the things that hold people back from fully stepping into their zone of genius? Well, sometimes there are circumstances, you know, I don't have um, the resources right now to explore that. I am just needing to pay the bills right now. And so there I am doing the job. I'm doing a job and I'm just doing the job to pay the bills. And that may be an intelligent thing to do right now um, to get your basic needs met or to, to get some, some, you know, something that's important, maybe like, I'm doing a job in my zone of excellence, but my kid is sick and I need that healthcare right now. So I'm not willing to shift right now. So there could be good reasons why people choose not to. Um, but I would say what I see mostly when I work with people is their minds aren't yet willing to imagine a possibility in which they could make plenty of money doing their zone of genius. They just don't believe it's possible or they're worried what the world is going to say about, uh, about them, you know, like, well, what are people going to think if I'm just doing X, Y, Z? I mean, doesn't, the culture doesn't respect that as much as this executive position I have. And so people have to be willing to source their approval from within so that, you know, if others around them don't accept them as much because they're not doing what's culturally rewarded as a role, then, um, you know, people will stay with something that they think makes their image better. And where does upper limiting come in? Yeah, upper maybe, limiting. Maybe, yeah, maybe for the audience, you can even explain what that term means. I, I learned this from Gay and Katie, and I love this concept. It was a game changer for me. The idea is you were born into a family system that said, this is how good life gets to be in your family system. This is how happy, how, how much laughter we'll have, how many friends we'll have, how much abundance in, the, in, the ter- in all of its different modes, how much rest we'll have. All of these things get role modeled to us as children. Um, Some of it's very directly communicated. Some of it's um, indirect. Some of it we just made up. Maybe it's not even true. We made it up that I'm not allowed to um, be happy while my dad struggles with depression. And so we have this thermostat setting, like this is how good life gets to be. And so Gay talks about in his book, The Big Leap, which is probably one of the books I refer most people to uh, who work with me, that there'll be these unconscious patterns that we have that bring us down from feeling more alive, more vital, more connected, um, because it feels like a threat somehow to our identity and particularly a threat to our relationship with our family of origin. And so I think people's upper limit patterns are really key 
to being able to create the lives they really want. And I think it's worth worth a lot of exploration, that topic. Yeah, what, I, what I'm hearing is, is that our upper limits in a lot of ways restrict how alive we can feel. So much, so much. It's like, is it okay? Or even like, is it okay to be so happy when a lot of people just in the world are struggling? Is that okay? A lot of people have guilt about that. Like, and so they'll sabotage things because they're afraid of, um, of the consequences of being so happy in, in a world that's mm-hmm. not always joining you. Yeah, I think this is a good segue to talk about uh, stories yeah. and the things we tell ourselves. Yeah. Um, what's the difference between a story and a fact? Okay, so the fact is what the camera records. So the fact the camera records you, <coughs> a man in front of his microphone, and me over here in front of my microphone. The camera records us. The camera records us talking. The camera could record certain words that we're saying. But everything else about what's happening is a story, meaning we're all going to subjectively make, make up opinions about it. So <clears throat> we'll say they're doing a good job <clears throat> of podcasting or they're not. And so <clears throat> my mind could make up a story. Oh, no, this is terrible. Diana's <laughs> having difficulty talking in the podcast, which is a story. The facts are woman's yeah, woman's voice changes, woman's uh, coughing. Those are the facts. And then everything I make up is a story. And the facts themselves, the fact that I'm coughing, the fact that um, my voice is changing is not a problem. The problem will occur when I make up a story about it. And so we work a lot with our clients to help them see how much their stories are the creator of their suffering. Mm. Because uh, most of the time, facts are not, facts can be cause of great pain, but not necessarily long-term suffering. And how might they start to unravel those stories? By starting to question, could there be another interpretation? Could there be Hmm. an opposite here that could be at least as true? We're not trying to get rid of the original story. You know, a lot of us should on ourselves and others. You should, I should, you shouldn't, I shouldn't. Can you start to argue the other side and see if that helps relax yourself enough so that you can be more open to learning? You still may want to make some significant changes, but those changes will start to happen while you're really open. So I feel like I could talk to you all day about the 15 commitments and how it relates to change and transition. Uh, To wrap up, I have a question that I ask all my guests which is, what does it mean to be human? First of all, I think it's profoundly courageous to be human. I think it means being able to be with both dark and light, to relax into the fact that we live in a world that has both, that inside of us and around us, and to learn to really accept that and do our best to love it all and then serve as best we can ourselves and others yeah with the highest visions we have for what the world could be that's beautiful well how can everyone find out more about you and your work and the conscious leadership group yeah you can find us on the web at conscious.is conscious.is is 
And um, we have lots and lots of content there for you all to digest if that's something that you're excited about. And how can folks follow you specifically? Oh, follow me. Let's see. I'm just, I guess I am starting to tweet. So you can follow me uh, at Diana Chapman. We also, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, uh, The Conscious Leadership Group, I think, is now on all of the primary channels. And so um, you can come find us, go go look us up, the Conscious Leadership Group on Instagram, Facebook, et cetera. Yeah, we'll, we'll link to them all. Fantastic. Thank you. So good to see you, Diana. Thanks so much for being on the show. You are so welcome. Thank you for this beautiful work you're doing in the world. I'm excited to hear more about how you're going to support people making big changes in their lives. See you soon. Bye. Hey, friends, this is Steve again. Just a few more things before we take off. In addition to this podcast, I have a free newsletter that I send every other Friday. It's easy to sign up and easy to cancel. Like the podcast, I share musings and curated resources on personal evolutions, life transitions, and conscious change. When you sign up, you'll also get access to my long-form essays that dive deep into a variety of topics, including emotional intelligence, coaching, mental health, solopreneurship, and more. Some of the past essays have been on ambition, judgment, parts work, and resistance to change. And if you like this episode or any others, please subscribe and leave a review in your favorite podcast app. This simple and kind gesture ensures more people will discover and benefit from the show. Finally, if you want to learn more, sponsor the show, or suggest future guests, just go to wheretheroadbends.fm. And if you feel called to reach out and say hi, you can always send me a message from there. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of Where the Road Bends. Until next time, stay curious and keep exploring the winding road of life.